Well, it's surprisingly easy to say, I believe in God, without really having to make much of a commitment. After all, when I look around at the beauty of creation, at all the bluebells that are currently flowering at the moment in the woodland around Claygate, well, personally, I find it hard to conceive that such beauty is just a a freak accident of a big explosion that happened 14 billion years ago. The beauty of creation naturally fills me with awe and wonder. The idea that there isn't a great architect behind all this and responsible for such design, well, it's a bit of a, a foreign concept to me. So I can say the first line of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, confidently, without really having to question any of my integrity. But to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, well, it goes way beyond the deist understanding of God, which believes that there was a God who started the ball rolling, but then sat passively back. If it's true that the God who created the universe sent his son Jesus to earth to prove that he really does want a relationship with me now, then this knowledge is a complete game changer. It demands my committed response. And what's more, to say I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, is by definition exclusive. It sets me at odds with the other Abrahamic faiths. It tells me that the Jews have overlooked their Messiah and that the Muslims have misunderstood the humility of God. The second line of the Apostles' Creed is where the rubber really starts to hit the road for the Christian believer. Yes, it might be a corporate confession of the church, but notice it starts with the words, I believe, to make sure nobody can hide in the crowd. It marks my own personal commitment to place all my eggs, or should I say, loaves and fish, in the basket of Jesus Christ. It's to agree with Jesus' words in John's Gospel. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the second line of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, is not to be spoken lightly, as if the words didn't matter. Saying the creed should impact the way I live my life. So what enables me to say this second line of the creed with confidence? Well, that's what we're going to explore together in the rest of our time now. For in the part of Paul's letter uh, to the Colossians, which I'd like you to turn to again, which is on page 1182. Um, If you're struggling to find Colossians, then uh, it's before all the T's, and uh, it's God's electric power company, or God eats pink custard. So... um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians and Colossians. Well, in this passage on page 1182 of first chapter of Colossians, there's one word which really stands out. And that is the word supremacy. And you can find it at the end of chapter 1 verse 18, where it says, So that in everything he, he being Jesus, might have supremacy. You see, the church in Colossae, who had once placed all their trust in Jesus, were beginning to lose their moorings, just as our secular society is leaving Jesus behind today. 
They were moving on from their foundation in the good news of Jesus Christ and being taken captive through the hollow and deceptive philosophies of this world. Paul says just as much in Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. So the answer that Paul wants to remind his friends with is of the supremacy of Jesus. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to think about what it means to believe in Jesus as our supreme saviour, the supreme son and the supreme lord. So beginning with Jesus, the supreme saviour. For people in some situations, it's obvious that they need saving. Take, for instance, the awful plight of the schoolgirls kidnapped by Boko Haram in northern Nigeria. If someone doesn't pay the money to buy their freedom or forces don't go in to rescue them, then they face a a life of slavery or even worse, being shot. These poor girls know they're in need of saving. Or take the situation in the Ukraine at the moment. The people there know that unless a political situation is reached soon, then their nation risks being torn apart. Until those who want to join Europe and those who want to join Russia are reconciled together, the country faces being divided through internal strife and war. But as for us here, as competent, well-educated individuals in comfortable Surrey... Our circumstances don't often make us feel like we're in need of any rescue or reconciliation. In fact, our society looks up to those who can do it all themselves. People who are self-reliant and seem to have it all together are deemed worthy of our praise. To admit that sometimes life is a struggle, that it's a cause for embarrassment, it's seen as a sign of weakness. And weakness is after all ugly. So we must pretend like it doesn't exist. Pull your socks up, sort yourself out, make yourself busier and pretend like your anxieties don't matter. Even if you are feeling lonely or like you're being torn apart inside. Well if you have ever felt like this when you've reached the end of your own resources but felt ashamed to ask for help or not even known who to turn to then I imagine you didn't find much solace in the solitary confinement, imprisoned by walls of hidden despair. Because the Old Testament is very clear. Every human being has been created to be in relationship with God. And this gives us an innate sense of longing to be part of something bigger than ourselves. But since the fall of Adam and Eve, every human being has had the relationship with God fractured. When Adam and Eve turned their backs on God, choosing to depend on their own wisdom, they were separated from the presence of God and held captive to the forces of sin. Physically, this meant that their bodies became subject to death. Emotionally, they became selfish and started to pass the book for the wrong that they themselves had done. And spiritually, they hid from God in the garden, so their ability to worship him was flawed. But God refused to abandon his creation. So he raised up prophets, priests and kings with the mission of turning the people's hearts back to him. And so we see that the Old Testament works through cycles of God raising up deliverers to save his people. They then praise his name in worship. But only for a time. Soon God's love and grace is taken for granted. God's rule and authority is rejected. Society breaks down and enemies invade. Eventually God's people recognise their desperation 
And so they turn to him and plead for help. And so God raises up another deliverer. And the people go on and on round this continuous loop, which only serves to demonstrate and reveal the self-centeredness of their devotion. Reading the Old Testament makes you question, God, is that it? You're left frustrating, wondering whether God's promise to bless all people through the line of Abraham will ever come true. The Old Testament leaves you longing for a supreme saviour. A saviour who can finally restore our relationship with our creator and free us from the spiralling consequences of our sin. So the question is, do you recognise yourself as part of this story? Are you able to admit that you long to be more connected and more empowered by God? But the way you live your life, well it always leaves you feeling kind of short. Although you want to do good, evil is right there with you. So you think that the elderly deserve better health care, but at the same time you do your best to avoid paying any tax. You congratulate your work colleague on such a successful presentation, but you're jealous of their success when you get home. You hope that your sons and daughters will dress modestly, but you can't help ogling at the opposite sex. We are not alone in this internal conflict. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul feels the pain of this condition himself. He exclaims, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Well, Paul's glorious answer is, thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul has had his mind set free from the despair of thinking that if he just tries a little bit harder, he can muster the strength to do it on his own. At the start of Luke's Gospel, the angel Gabriel tells Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. Gabriel didn't pluck the name Jesus out of midair by accident. The derivation of Jesus' name comes from joining two Hebrew words together, which mean God saves. Jesus' mission is spelt out in his very name. When you speak the name of Jesus, you're proclaiming God saves. Then in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus' name is followed by the word Christ. And as Philip has already talked to us, Christ is not Jesus' surname, it's his title. It speaks of his role in the way that doctor or reverend speaks of a profession. The title Christ means the Messiah, the anointed one, the one commissioned by God to save his people. And when you look at all the work of Jesus in the New Testament, you see how he supremely fulfills the Old Testament roles of prophet, priest and king. So when you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, you're admitting that you were once held captive to sin, But now you're trusting that Jesus has set you free and that through his strength, your relationship with God has and will continue to be restored. Well, such knowledge is too wonderful to grasp. It should move our minds to grateful thanks. Well, next, under the the heading of the Supreme Son, We're going to move on to consider what it means to believe Jesus is God's only son. With particular reference to the word only. Because in a seeming contradiction, there are lots of 
sons of God in the Bible. Adam is referred to as a son of God. The angels are referred to as sons of God. The nation of Israel is described as God's son. They were all given the title, the sons of God, in a vocational sense. They were supposed to be God's representatives, bearing his image and fulfilling some axis of God's work here on earth. Well, this is in a similar fashion to the way sons would inherit their father's business in traditional societies. In traditional societies, if your father was a farmer, then he'd train you up to be a farmer, just like him. So in a sense, you not only carried half of his genetic image, you also grew up to serve your community with the same vocational sense of him, their image of him. Now if you're a man here and I ask you to to put your hand up if you're in the same employment that your father was in when he was your age, then I suppose not many of you would be able to put up your hands. And likewise, many of the women here, you're probably doing different things to your mothers when they were your age. In this vocational sense, we are imperfect copies of our parents. So not all people with the surname Taylor make shirts anymore. And not all people with the surname Butcher cut up meat. Well, in the same way, these sons of God were imperfect copies in their service of God. They couldn't live up to the image of their inherited call. And the same was true for those given the title Son of God because they were the kings who ruled on the throne of David. God's sovereign goodness was supposed to be mediated to the nations through the Davidic line of kings. And the blueprint for their role is given in Psalm 97, where it says, The Lord reigns, and righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. But I don't know if anybody's read the uh, book of one or two kings recently. Well, if you have, you'll note that those who sat on David's throne were imperfect sons at best, and an absolute disaster at worst. So as people seeking to demonstrate the love of Jesus here, it's worth us reflecting on our representation of him. I believe it was Mahatma Gandhi who said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Well, unfortunately, our witness to God's rescue plan will always be imperfect. But that's why we point to Jesus as our saviour and not to ourselves. Because in the Bible it's clear that only Jesus is God's perfectly obedient son. In the Gospel of John chapter 5 Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus is the perfect image of God in his vocation. Through Jesus, Colossians chapter 1 tells us that God reconciled all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus perfectly obeyed his Father, saying, not my will but yours be done, his consequent death on the cross reversed the effects of the fall. Jesus came as the perfect Adam to restore the whole of creation into a right relationship with God. 
Now the idea of being a son of God was not just limited to Hebrew thought. It was also prevalent in Roman thought in the sense of being divine around the time of Jesus. After his assassination, Julius Caesar was deified in 42 BC as the divine Julius, which actually meant the God-like Julius. And his adopted son Augustus became known as the son of the divine Julius, or simply the son of God for short. Now, whilst Augustus's officials knew better, and they maintained that it was the position of the emperor that the people were to worship, and not the actual emperor himself, Augustus was more than favourable towards the idea of promoting a deliberate sense of ambiguity. And so the distinction between the role and the subject of the people's worship was completely lost outside of Rome. However, when it comes to the identity of Jesus as the divine Son of God, there is no sense of ambiguity in the Apostle Paul's mind. For Paul, Jesus is the perfect Son of God. In Colossians 1 verse 15, Paul writes, The Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus makes the invisible God visible. If you want to know what God the Father looks like, then Jesus says, look at me. And Paul then magnifies his statement in case the Colossians don't get it. For in him all things were created. Paul is under no doubt that Jesus is not just God-like, conceived of the Holy Spirit. Jesus shares the same divine creation aspects, the same power as God himself. Thirty years after Jesus died, within the same lifespan of Jesus' first eyewitnesses, Paul is making some whopping claims about Jesus' divine identity. Claims that Paul had previously had people like Stephen in the book of Acts stoned to death for. So now in chapter 2 of Colossians, Paul is able to say things like, For in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And Paul is not alone in believing that Jesus truly shares the divine image of God. Jesus claims it too. In John chapter 5, when the Jewish leaders try to persecute him for healing an invalid on the Sabbath day, Jesus defends himself by calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. And then later in John's gospel, Jesus says, I and the father are one. It sounds quite a funny thing to say really. But if Jesus shares equality with God, then somehow his miracles don't seem quite as miraculous. So to summarise what's been said of Jesus, the Supreme Son, Jesus is perfect in his divinity and he's perfect in his vocation. Therefore, it can only be said of Jesus that he is the perfect God-man. So I want to ask you, Do you recognise the uniqueness of Jesus here this morning? Because if you do, I hope it stirs your hearts to worship. Yet our worship of Jesus isn't something that is passively done. It's something that is active within us as well as felt. It's incomplete if we're not then willing to make him our supreme Lord. 
in our Colossians passage of Colossians chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. They make it clear that Jesus is the Lord of all. He is the Lord over all creation. All things have been created through him and for him. So just as if I were to make a model aeroplane and then fly it, it would give me great pleasure. Jesus was working hand in hand with God the Father at the universe's creation. So now he gets to enjoy the marvel of it all. He's also the Lord over all power structures, whether here on earth or in heaven. So all governments exist for the purpose of serving Jesus, whether they realise it or not. That's why there will be a day of judgment, when everyone will have to give an account for the way they've ruled over those entrusted by God into their care. This includes prime ministers, presidents, and all those who rule over nations. But it also includes you and me, if we have any responsibility for the welfare of another, no matter how small. Remember, Jesus came not to boss over, but to lovingly serve. And the foremost example we have of this is when Jesus died for his body, the church. The church is not a humanly appointed structure. The fact that people gather in Jesus' name is of divine origin and design. So like a grape, when it gets separated from the vine, the church dies when its leaders chop off the headship of Jesus. The body flounders aimlessly when it tries to conform to society's expectations rather than honouring Jesus as the supreme Lord. You see, I believe a supreme Lord uh, deserves our supreme submission. Someone to whom we're willing to bow the knee and serve. But we're not bowing the knee as if forced to by an angry dictator. We're bowing as an offering of love for someone that we long to please. We're recognising the authority of Jesus and we're trusting that his plans are much bigger than we can conceive. We're surrendering to God our own ambitions in the hope that God's ambitions are far bigger than ours. We're asking Jesus to place his yoke on us so that in our labour we can find rest for our souls. And we're believing that when we face doubts or opposition to our faith, Jesus will lead us into all truth. So I want to draw to a close by asking, to what extent have you submitted to Jesus as your Lord? In the Church of England's daily prayer schedule, I'm always challenged, uh, particularly challenged, on Tuesdays. For on Tuesdays, there's a prayer of commitment adapted from the work of Alexander Carmichael in the 19th century. And I want to read it slowly to you now so you can reflect on it and what does it mean to submit to Jesus as Lord. So just maybe close your eyes and listen. I'm giving you worship with all of my life. I am giving you obedience with all of my power. I am giving you praise with all of my strength. 
I am giving you honour with all of my speech. I am giving you love with all of my heart. I am giving you affection with all of my sense. I am giving you my being with all of my mind. I am giving you my soul, O Most High and Holy Lord. So to finish then, I believe in Jesus Christ, my supreme saviour, so my mind is moved to grateful thanks. I believe Jesus is God's supreme and only son, so my heart is stirred to worship. And I believe that Jesus is my supreme Lord, so I offer all that is in my hands to serve him. Amen.